Some commentators have described the book of Isaiah as the climactic book of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Isaiah's writings were certainly important to many later prophets, including Nephi, Abinadi, Mormon, and of course Jesus Christ himself. When describing his own passion for the words of Isaiah, Nephi said, My soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words to my people, for he verily saw my Redeemer even as I have seen him. And then Nephi concluded, And now I write some of the words of Isaiah, that whoso of my people shall see these words may lift up their hearts and rejoice for all men. Now these are the words, and you may liken them unto you and unto all men. This week we begin our study of Isaiah, and aim for both excitement for and skill at studying the words of this pivotal prophet. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton. And this is our podcast where we study scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Scripture Study Project. We are diving into the book of Isaiah. I hope that you enjoyed the mini episodes over the summer. Um, This is a full length episode. And I also apologize because last episode, Krista and I were there together. It was a 15-minute episode. This one is a 30-minute episode, and it's just me. So apologies for the quadruple dose of my voice over last week. But I am really excited to study Isaiah. I know this might sound cliche, but people either love or hate Isaiah. I love Isaiah. It is one of my absolute favorite books of Scripture to study for me personally. It's also one of my favorite books to study with other people. And my goal at the end of this episode is that if you already have a love and excitement for Isaiah, then that love is rekindled, re-energized, and maybe um, grown or flamed just a bit. But if you don't, if you hear the name Isaiah and it makes you worry a little bit about the next couple of weeks of Old Testament study, my goal is at the end of this, you'll feel some excitement, um, some, some love for Isaiah, and you'll have some practical tools in your hand to really help you have a powerful study in Isaiah. Now, to do all of that, I'm going to invite you to do something that's a little bit unique for one of our episodes, and that is I'm going to invite you to actually step into my institute class for a minute. So let's pretend just for a minute that you're in a class that I'm instructing on Isaiah. You're there at the beginning with maybe some peers, friends that you know, friends some that you don't know. We're all talking together, and uh, we begin class. We have an opening hymn and an opening prayer. And then I turned to the class and I asked, did anyone notice my object lesson as you walked in today? And you look around, everyone else looks around, no one else saw anything or noticed anything. And so I walked towards the back of the classroom, right next to the door where everyone entered. On the ground is a handkerchief. It's a little bit twisted and turned, looks like it's been kicked aside a bit. So I pick it up and I hold it up and walk back towards the front of the class and asked, did anyone notice this as you walked in? And People kind of shrug. Um, I tell the class, I was watching as you walked in, and uh, I watched quite a few of you actually stepped on it as you walked in. Anyone think you might have stepped on it? Maybe a couple of people raised their hand. And then I look at you and I say, I was watching you specifically, and as you walked in, I noticed that you stepped on this handkerchief. And then, in mock sincerity, which you don't yet know is mock, I ask, do you know what this is? And you say, no, but you have this sinking sense of foreboding. And I say, before my grandmother passed away, 
and you have this sunken feeling, oh no, I just stepped on his grandmother's scarf. And then because I can't hold a joke or a prank long enough, I laugh and I say, no, this isn't anything from any departed family member. I actually just grabbed it from the drawer in my, in my house. But for a brief moment there, when you thought you had stepped on something that meant a lot to me, what did you feel? And if you can capture that feeling, then I want to start our study of Isaiah in actually 1 Nephi chapter 19. If you really want a, a professional, powerful, passionate introduction to Isaiah, you don't actually start in Isaiah. I would suggest you start in 1 Nephi 19 and also in 2 Nephi 25. Those two places, Nephi describes his love for Isaiah. And so if you go to 1 Nephi 19, one of the things that Nephi says right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 6 is he says, I do not write anything upon plates, save it be that I think it be sacred. And then in verse 7 he says, For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and the soul, others set it not, and trample under their feet. Now in a minute, Nephi is going to describe why he feels that the book of Isaiah is such a special book. The writings of Isaiah are so meaningful to him. And I sense in this just a little bit, as Nephi, maybe the seer, looks into the future and sees how people might treat this. This is, for Nephi, Isaiah is the most recently deceased major prophet. He lives in the days of Jeremiah, and so uh, Nephi has heard uh the, the prophecies of Isaiah passed down probably from his father and from others. This is, for all intents and purposes, this is Nephi's President Monson or, or President Hinckley. And when he hears that people trample, when, they, when he hears that people take lightly the words of Isaiah, it causes him a bit of a sting. And then he goes on to explain, Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught. And hearken not to the voice of his counsels. Verse 9. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it, because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. In other words, some things which Nephi esteems to be of great worth, the writings of Isaiah, and specifically those writings that point to the coming of the Messiah, he esteems to be of great worth, but sometimes we might inadvertently trample under our feet. And there's a big discussion to be had about what causes people to trample the writings of Isaiah or the prophecies about Christ under their feet, or maybe to trample the very God of Israel under their feet. Is it neglect? Is it inattention? Is it deliberate um, trampling? Whatever it is, at the very end of 1 Nephi 19, Nephi now turns his attention to his brothers and to his modern readers and he says in verse 23, I did read many things unto them, meaning his brothers, which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For I did liken all scripture unto us that it might be for our profit and learning. In other words, Nephi's solution to the problem that people trample the very God of Israel under their feet, set him to be a thing of naught, hearken not to his counsels, ignore him, is that he wants to persuade them to believe in Christ. And the greatest tool he can think of to do that is the writings of Isaiah. 
Now, just briefly, if you pause and go to the beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah, right in chapter 1, describes why, maybe why Nephi feels so passionate. Listen to what Isaiah says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. In other words, Isaiah begins his book by citing the very problem that Nephi described in his, which is, people are forgetting the very God of Israel. They're trampling him under their feet. Um, They don't know him the way that they used to. And Nephi's solution to that, Isaiah's solution to that, is to persuade people to believe in Christ. So, as you open up the book of Isaiah, there are two powerful things that can be done to make this um, a, a enlightening, persuasive, and powerful study for you. Now, I know that there are a lot of keys and tricks and tips to understanding Isaiah out there. Nephi even gives some in 2 Nephi 25. He'll talk about understanding the culture and the context and many of those things that are helpful. I've seen those printed on lists, the five keys to understanding Isaiah, the seven keys to understanding Isaiah, the 16 keys to understanding Isaiah. And all of those are helpful. But if you're anything like me, sometimes I see that list and I think, great, it's going to take me forever to master these keys and Isaiah then is still unreachable. Well, even though those are helpful, I even have some of them over the years that I have given to people, I have found that there are really only two keys that will make Isaiah come alive for you. And they're going to sound so completely basic to you, something that you already know how to do, but maybe have never fully done with the book of Isaiah, that once you see them in action, It will change the way you read Isaiah, and it will simplify your experience so you don't have to go through 17 different keys to squeeze one ounce of insight out of Isaiah. If you use these two powerful keys, they will make all the difference in your study. And maybe just to back up the fact that you really only need these two keys and not some kind of master's thesis on how to understand Isaiah, listen to what Nephi says in 2 Nephi 25. He describes in the first couple of verses why Isaiah has special meaning to him. But then he says in verse 8, or verse 7 and 8, Behold, I proceed with mine own prophecy according to mine plainness, in the which I know that no man can err. Nevertheless, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they shall come to pass. Now listen carefully. Wherefore, they, meaning the prophecies of Isaiah, are of worth unto the children of men, And he that supposeth they are not, unto them will I speak more particularly, and confine the words unto mine own people. For I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. And then this, for in that day shall they understand them. Wherefore, for their good have I written them. And so even though understanding context and culture and meaning and symbolism are helpful, at least from Nephi's perspective, we in the last days will have all we need to be able to understand Isaiah. And so, two things that help us understand Isaiah, and they come from a verse we've already read, that one back in 1 Nephi 19. The first thing 
is, again, so obvious you're going to laugh at it. In verse 23 in chapter 19, Nephi says that he reads the book of Isaiah because they persuade people to believe in Christ. The very first key to understanding Isaiah is you look for Christ. If you can center your study on Christ, Isaiah comes alive. If you know that that's the the thing that Isaiah is looking forward to the most is the advent of the Messiah, then you'll start to see Christ appear everywhere in the writings of Isaiah. And not just see him, you'll start to learn about him, his character. Isaiah describes the Messiah in such a unique, specific, and detailed way, perhaps more than any other Old Testament prophet. And so if you center your study on Christ, that's one of the first and probably the best key to understanding Isaiah. The second key is is also in that verse, and it is, Nephi says that he likened all scriptures unto him and his people. In other words, the second key for understanding Isaiah is to study yourself. Key number one is center on Christ. The second one is study self. In other words, when you come to Isaiah, you're going to be looking for two things. You're looking for Christ, and then you're looking for yourself. And if you can find those two things, Isaiah comes alive. So, I'm going to give you a couple of examples just so you can see what this looks like. And then in your study this week in chapters 1 through 12, in fact, in your study throughout all of the chapters of Isaiah, try this out. Deliberately look for details about Christ, about his personality, his character, his actions, his mission. And then look for details about yourself. Look for descriptions that fit what's going on in your life, the things that might hurt or be broken. As an example... Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, in describing his people that, you remember, have turned away from the Lord and don't know him the way that they used to, he uses an image to describe them. In verse 5, he says, Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. And then he'll go on to list the sicknesses. Not only is the heart faint, But the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. He goes on to describe your country is desolate, your, your cities are burned, there's strangers that devour your land. In other words, Isaiah is speaking to a people who are sick. And the wounds, the bruises, and the pains that they have experienced have not been healed. They have not been bound up. Now, if you pause really quick and you use those two keys, the second one works here. Start thinking about your own life. As you look at that list of sicknesses or illnesses, are there any of those that might apply to you or to someone that you love and teach? Is it that there's a lack of soundness? in the head? Is there a bruise or a sore? Um, A friend of mine this last week, one of our seminary teachers that's a dentist, described what a putrefying sore is and how a dentist has to clean out some of the rot and the decay in a tooth socket. It was gross. I have a weak stomach, so I won't describe it here. But is there something like that in your heart, in your life, buried and and aching for healing and, and, and help? but that you just haven't found anything for? Or is there something like that in the life of someone that you know and love? Because if so, you have used the second key. And now this isn't a book about ancient Judah and what's going on thousands of years ago. This is about you and about what's going on in your life. 
So then, chapter 3, just a small little uh, detail. In verse 6 and 7, Isaiah describes how in a coming day, there will be so much poverty that people will find anyone that has clothing and they'll say to that person that has clothing, be our ruler. Um, then in verse 7, in that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. The word that's translated as healer in chapter 3, verse 7, is the exact same as the word that's translated as bound up in verse in chapter 1, verse 6. Um, in other words, chapter 1, verse 6, Isaiah says, there are people that have these sores that are that can't be bound up. They cannot be healed. And when they go to their peers, when they go to other sources of healing and help, those people will even have to turn to them and say, I can't be a healer. This kabosh, this open wound that can't be bound up, um, it can't be solved by your next door neighbor, by the person that has the wealth or the prestige or the honor. It won't be solvable by them. And boy, what a relevant thing for us today. Uh, how many times have we or people that we know and love looked for help in all the wrong places and not found anything that is satisfying? Well, if you go to the very end of Isaiah, I know we're cheating and jumping out of this week's block a bit, but if you go to Isaiah chapter 61, we read a very famous passage. And it's famous because Jesus himself recited this very passage when he went to the synagogue. If you remember, this is the passage that enraged the people so much that they were willing to kill him because it made them so mad. So, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up. And you're right, it's the same Hebrew word, kabosh. To bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then verse 3, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. The thing that made the people so mad about what Jesus said, at least one of the things, is that he was applying this messianic promise to himself, and he was saying that he had the ability to bind up their wounds. And at that point in Israel's history, they had become almost proud of the fact that they were the suffering people with wounds that could not be bound up. It was part of their identity which happens very much today. People take these wounds and they get so deep and they go along for so long without being solved and healed and helped that it becomes part of our identity. And here comes the Savior saying, I have been sent, I've been anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. I am the binder upper. It's the exact same word. Now, that required that we jumped to a few places, but can you see how Studying yourself and then centering your study on Christ allows you to see something in Isaiah that is just powerful. Let me give you another example. Isaiah chapter 6. This time, I won't point out to you what I see. I'm just going to read it. And as I read it, you listen for what sounds like it might be applicable to you and 
look for what stands out to you as Isaiah describes the Lord. A little bit of background in chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, Isaiah gives us a time stamp. It's the king, the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a very successful king, brought a lot of acclaim to Judah. And so when their famous king dies and the people are hearing rumors uh, and hearing news of these growing external powers, Assyria and Babylon um, and Egypt that are all kind of honing in on the Middle East, of course, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel in a couple of years, will be completely destroyed by Assyria, which Isaiah talks about in the next chapter. But that's what's going on. That's what has Isaiah worried, or that's what that's what has Uzziah worried, who then comes to Isaiah. And so, I'll read, you study yourself and center on Christ. Look for yourself and look for Christ. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, angels. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved, and the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongs from off the altar, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Can you find yourself in that passage? Are you worried about external turmoil that's going on in your life? Are you feeling undone by your own internal insufficiencies? Then can you see the description, the beautiful description of the Lord there. The superlative, the three holies in verse 3. Uh, in Hebrew, they don't have punctuation marks, and so to emphasize something, they just repeat it. Sometimes they'll repeat it twice, verily, verily. And sometimes, when they really want to emphasize something, they'll repeat it three times. And here it's repeated three times. Describes the power of God's presence. And then, the beauty of a coal being taken from off the altar where we offer sacrifices, specifically sacrifices for sin, and that coal being then put on the specific spot that I feel most self-conscious about. And that angel saying to me, your sin is purged. And then when the Lord says, now who will use their mouth and go talk to other people about this? I, who before felt really insecure about my unclean lips, now come forward and say, I'm ready. Send me. It's a beautiful passage and a wonderful place to study yourself and to look for Christ. Let's look at just one last one. Isaiah chapter 11 is a fairly well-known one because not only is it quoted again in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 21, it's also the focus of 
section 113 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So here's a section of scripture that ends up in three separate books. And so you know that there's something of merit here. But in order to really understand it, and in order to find yourself in the story, we have to go back just a little bit. Chapter 7, we skip forward in time two generations. It's now uh, Ahaz, who is the king, and he's the grandson of Uzziah. And when Ahaz is king, uh, it's, it's turmoil. The things that Isaiah was looking at in the future have now taken place. The northern kingdom has made an alliance with Syria, and that's in verse 2, Syria and Ephraim are confederate. Uh, they're trying to fend off the, the coming Assyrian army. Um, they're, they're putting political pressure on the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it's just a mess. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is really worried. And so he comes to Isaiah and he looks for counsel or for help. And as I, Isaiah tells him in chapter 8, verse 12, Say ye not a confederacy to all them whom this people shall say, a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. In other words, Isaiah says to him, you don't need to worry about this confederacy. In fact, in chapter 7, he gives him that famous sign, verse 14, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then verse 16, before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. Now, of course, that has a messianic fulfillment. Matthew points us out to that or points that out to us to see that Jesus fulfills that prophecy. But it's also an immediate prophecy that Isaiah makes to Ahaz saying, listen, I'm going to have a child, um, and that child, Mahershala Hashbaz, that comes in the next, uh, the next chapter, will be a sign that you don't have to worry about what's going to happen in the next couple of years. What you need to worry about is the turmoil that's coming because the people have turned away from God. In fact, in chapter 9, and here's where you can look for yourself, verses 13 and 14, the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them. Neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. In other words, people are going to feel cut off from the Lord. In this case, because of their own sin. But if we're looking for ourselves, of course, we can feel cut off from the Lord because of our sin. But sometimes we can feel cut off from him, not because we're sinning, but just because mortality is hard. And sometimes it's difficult to nurture a relationship with the Lord in the midst of a mortality that's really difficult. And so, to these people who feel cut down or cut off, now we go to chapter 11. And I know that in Doctrine and Covenants section 13, it's going to use some of these symbols and point to Joseph Smith, which is a very accurate, of course it is because it's the Lord giving it, uh, reading of the symbols, but there's another reading as well. If we center our study on Christ, listen in chapter 11, verse 1, for Christ. And it shall, and there shall come forth a rod, alternate translation is a, a young shoot, a young branch, out of the stem, alternate translation, stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. In other words, out of this stump that is Israel, 
that's been cut down because of their disobedience or out of the stumps in our own lives when we feel cut down, out of that stump, out of those dark moments can come forth a rod, um, the rod of the Lord, the shoot, the, the branch that grows up out of the roots and on this branch is the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, Christ can show up in sometimes the darkest places of our lives and then listen to what he does when he comes. Verse 4, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Listen to what he does and then listen to how he does it. He slays the wicked, but it's not with the sword. It is not with violence. It's not with anger. He judges, but he doesn't judge with harshness or with cruelty or condemnation. He reproves, but not with anger. This is the Lord that shows up in our stump times to help us and to guide us and to rejuvenate strength within us so that we can be, as we read in Isaiah 61, those trees um, growing up to the Lord. Now, that's just a couple of places in this week's study where you can study yourself and center your study on Christ. But of course, there are many more and you will find ones that are specific to you and all the more powerful because it's direct revelation to you. But hopefully this was helpful for you. Continue this study. We'll build on it over the next couple of episodes. Thank you for being with us this week and we'll see you next episode.